You're listening to the RBN Energy Blogcast. This is an audio version of RBN's Daily Energy Blog, which is a fun and informative daily commentary on oil, gas, NGL, and renewable markets. Each morning, we cover commodity fundamentals and industry changes to keep you informed of developing trends across the energy landscape. Sunday, September 19, 2021. A Matter of Trust, Part 4. Adding Structure and Credibility to Carbon Offsets. Published by... Housley Carr. In the recently fervent efforts of oil and gas companies to mitigate their environmental impact and improve their standing with investors and lenders, they are progressively striving to cut their own emissions of greenhouse gases and to offset the GHG emissions that are unavoidable through the use of carbon credits, cutting emissions from well sites, pipeline operations, refineries, and the like won't be easy or cheap, but at the least the results are measurable and provable. Before, we emitted X, and now we emit X minus Y. The true value of voluntary carbon credits is more difficult to calculate. Sure, each credit is said to equal one metric ton of carbon dioxide or its equivalent, but how do you really measure with any certainty how many metric tons of CO2 will be absorbed by 1,000 acres of preserved forest in Oregon, or how much methane won't be produced by changing the diet of 1,000 cows in Wisconsin? And how can you be sure that slice of Oregon wouldn't have been left in place anyway, or that the dairy farmer has actually changed what he's feeding his herd? In today's RBN blog, we look at voluntary carbon credits, concerns about their validity, and ongoing efforts to ensure that they actually accomplish the goal of GHG reductions. Only a few years ago, companies in every part of the oil and gas industry were trying to wrap their heads around the shale revolution and what it would mean for them. Producers were grappling with how to fine-tune their drilling and completion techniques to wring more crude oil, natural gas, and NGLs out of the rock. Midstreamers were repurposing existing pipelines and building new ones to accommodate mammoth production growth in the Marcellus Utica, Bakken, and other fast-growing shale plays. Refiners were looking at crude slate changes and physical alterations to their facilities to make fuller use of the light sweet crude the U.S. was suddenly producing in abundance. Now, in addition to coping with the energy market dislocations associated with COVID-19, These same companies are educating themselves about ESG-related issues and establishing aggressive goals for reducing their GHG emissions, with some even aiming to become entirely carbon neutral by mid-century. As we said in Part 1 and Part 2 of this blog series, a growing number of market players have been dipping their toes in these ESG waters by offering shipments of carbon-neutral LNG, crude oil, and LPG, where every metric ton, or MT, of CO2 emitted during production processing. Shipping and end-use consumption is said to be matched one-for-one with an MT of independently verified, nature-based carbon offsets. In Part 3, we discussed efforts by a number of U.S. and Canadian midstream companies to reduce GHG emissions from pipelines by, among other things, switching from gas to electric compressors, developing solar projects to power their operations, funding projects to reducing emissions elsewhere, and acquiring carbon credits. From what we've seen and heard, it's a safe bet that the use of carbon credits, and the demand for additional carbon credits to be generated, will increase by leaps and bounds through the 2020s as the oil and gas industry and other GHG-producing sectors of the broader economy ramp up their ESG programs and seek to meet their nearer-term GHG reduction goals. As we noted in Part 3, however, skeptics continue to criticize the use of carbon credits to offset CO2 and other GHG emissions. Among other things, they question whether the projects on which the credits are based will actually have as much of an emissions impact as their promoters claim, and assert that oil and gas companies should focus more on reducing their own emissions and less on trying to mitigate them via the purchase of allegedly dubious carbon offsets. Today, we'll try to address the issue head-on, acknowledging upfront that there's a lot of fuzziness, uncertainty, 
and disagreement out there, and we don't have all the answers. No one does. First of all, carbon credits, aka carbon offsets, are billed as transferable instruments generated by efforts to reduce the amount of GHGs that would otherwise be in the Earth's atmosphere. Measured, as we said, in metric tons, or MT, of CO2 equivalent or CO2e, GHGs, carbon credits can result either from projects to cut actual emissions of CO2, methane, and other GHGs or efforts to increase the absorption of CO2 etc. that is already in the atmosphere. Examples of the former would be the development of carbon-free power generation sources such as wind farms or solar facilities, or projects to capture the large volumes of methane escaping from abandoned coal mines. GHG absorption efforts, in turn, are generally nature-based, often involving the preservation and or restoration of woodlands and wetlands, though they can also include technology-based approaches such as direct air capture facilities that suck CO2 out of the atmosphere. No matter the type of effort, it is important that it provide what ESG and carbon credit folks call additionality, that is, the program or project must result in a GHG reduction that would not have occurred otherwise. For instance, a company's commitment to preserve a coastal mangrove forest in Florida that is already protected by federal and state environmental regulations or a conservation easement wouldn't provide additionality, but a commitment to preserve a coastal mangrove forest in Indonesia that has no such protections would. It's also important, for obvious reasons, that a carbon credit isn't double-counted, i.e. used twice. A case in point, as part of the ongoing discussions about implementing the 2015 Paris Agreement, Brazil has been asserting that it should be able to count the protection of Amazon rainforests toward the country's own GHG goals and also sell carbon credits associated with those same rainforests to a refinery in Louisiana or a steam cracker in India. Double counting makes the value of one MT carbon credit sort of suspect. In many cases, the biggest challenges in ensuring that a carbon credit is the real deal and not a pig in a poke relates to the calculation of the CO2 or other GHGs that are removed from the atmosphere. Put simply, how do you come up with a number for the metric tons of CO2 absorbed by that 1,000 acres of preserved Oregon forest we mentioned in today's introduction? Or what's the determination of a number for the methane not belched, literally, into the atmosphere by those 1,000 Wisconsin cows that are each fed a few ounces of seaweed a day to reduce their gassiness? The task of ascertaining that the carbon credits generated for use in voluntary efforts to offset GHGs meet a number of basic criteria, additionality, no double counting, and CO2 impact estimation, among many others, generally falls to one or more of the third-party standard setters, for lack of a better phrase, that have been established in recent years including VERA, the gold standard, the American Carbon Registry, and Climate Action Reserve. The primary purposes of these entities are to 1. Establish standards for carbon credit projects, 2. Measure offset projects against their criteria, and 3. Maintain registries that manage the credits and retire them when they are acquired. The catch, as you might guess, is that, like Led Zeppelin, ACDC, and Guns N' Roses in the world of hard rock, each of the carbon credit standards has its own, unique characteristics, and there's no consensus on which is best. We did an intercompany poll on the hard rock bands we mentioned before and came up with a similarly mixed result. To cover their bases, a number of carbon-related projects seek and secure stamps of approval from multiple standard setters. That may help to assuage the concerns of many ESG-minded investors and lenders and oil and gas companies, but it would seem preferable to have a global carbon credit standard, or at least a set of baseline principles, that just about everyone could buy into. That's the aim of the Task Force on Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets, or TSVCM, a global, private sector-led effort that has been working to ensure that the carbon credits used in voluntary initiatives to reduce GHG emissions have a high degree of integrity, and that there is a robust, transparent, 
and liquid market for trading those credits. TSVCM estimates that the volume of carbon credits needed to support industry's voluntary efforts will need to grow by up to 15 times the current level by 2030, but it worries that today's markets for carbon credit is highly fragmented and facing ongoing criticism regarding the quality of credits. The year-old task force has said that for money to flow to the right GHG-related projects, a well-functioning voluntary carbon market with high-integrity quality standards and robust governance is needed, and soon. To address credit quality concerns, TSVCM is in the process of developing what it calls Core Carbon Principles, or CCPs, which will serve as a threshold standard for defining high quality that surpasses existing project certifications. It has noted that some companies that use carbon credits to help meet their near-term GHG ESG goals have large teams dedicated to independent verification and purchasing of these credits, a commendable but inefficient way to ensure the credits are of high quality. It's too soon to know whether TSVCM's effort will take root and become the industry standard, but we'll be tracking it and blogging about it again soon. A Matter of Trust was written by Billy Joel and appears as the third song on side one of his tenth studio album, The Bridge. Released as the second single from the album in July 1986, A Matter of Trust went to number 10 on the Billboard Hot 100 Singles chart. Personnel on the record were, Billy Joel, on lead, backing vocals, guitar, acoustic piano, and synthesizer, David Brown and Russell Javers, on guitar, Doug Stegmeyer, on bass, Liberty DeVito on drums, and Jeff Bova, on synthesizer. The bridge was recorded in 1985-86 at the Power Station, Chelsea Sound, and RCA Studios in New York City and Evergreen Studios in Burbank, California. Produced by Phil Ramone, the album was released in July 1986. It went to number 7 on the Billboard Top 200 Albums chart, and has been certified two times platinum by the Recording Industry Association of America. Four singles were released from the LP. Billy Joel is an American singer, songwriter, and musician from New York who has sold over 150 million records worldwide. He started his career as a member of the Hassles, who made two albums for United Artists in 1967 and 1969. Joel then formed the keyboard and drum duo, Attila, who released one album for Epic in 1970. Stephen Thomas Earlywine of All Music wrote, Attila undoubtedly is the worst album released in the history of rock and roll. Joel himself has called the album Psychedelic BS. He started his solo career in 1971, with the release of his debut album, Cold Spring Harbor. Billy Joel has released 13 studio albums, 6 live albums, 16 compilation albums, and 61 singles. He has won 5 Grammy Awards, is a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and has been awarded a Gershwin Prize for Popular Song from the Library of Congress and a Kennedy Center Honor. He continues to write music and occasionally perform live. Thanks for listening to the RBN Daily Energy Blogcast. For more information on energy market reports, maps, and consulting engagements, please visit us at rbnenergy.com. And thanks for rocking with us.